When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There are few things as haunting as child abductions. Whether they end in horrific circumstances or remain unsolved decades later, their lingering effects haunt communities and families alike. Today we look at seven tragic cases of missing children, with each of these cases as heartbreaking and as devastating as the next. This episode on Mysteriously Listed. Number 7. Sheila Fox In 1944, six-year-old Sheila Fox was a student at the St James Primary School in Bolton, Lancashire, England. On Friday, August 18, 1944, after finishing school for the day, Sheila left school to walk the short distance to her home. At approximately 4pm, a couple of students saw Sheila talking to a man outside a bakery shop. The man was riding a black bicycle and would be described as wearing a blue suit, being clean-shaven, slim, with a fair complexion and aged somewhere between 25 and 30 years old and around 5 foot 8. Sheila was wearing a green coat with a pink ribbon in her blonde hair. The students said that Sheila and the man talked for about three minutes. Sheila then sat on the crossbar of the man's bike and the two rode off. Later that night, Sheila's parents realised that their daughter had not returned home and they frantically called her school friends to see if they knew where she was. Unfortunately, none of them had the answer and Sheila's parents immediately notified the police of their missing daughter. The police began searching the nearby wooded area, trails and parks, but after a day of investigation, they failed to find anything. They then decided to search multiple air raid shelters, suggesting that the abductor may have hid her underground. Investigators searched every air raid shelter in the nearby area, and even though they didn't find her, they did recover her pink ribbon. With this clue, they were confident that Sheila was taken inside this particular shelter and was later moved away. However, with further investigation, they soon found that the pink ribbon they had discovered was worn by many students at the school and the possibility of Sheila staying at the shelter became small. A week later, one of Sheila's classmates came forward. He told the police he had spoken with Sheila before she disappeared. The classmate told the police that Sheila said she was going to meet a man after school that day, 
and they were going to meet with other children, but she didn't say where. Her parents believed that Sheila must have known the man very well, because she was a shy child who would not talk to strangers. There were several alleged sightings of a girl matching Sheila's description, as well as that of the man on the bike. One witness said they saw the man and a little girl walking besides one another in a grassy field, while another witness reported seeing a man in a white shirt abandoning his bike on the side of the road around 11 o'clock that morning. Despite these alleged sightings, none of these were confirmed, and police have stated they believe these sightings may be pure coincidence. Less than a year later, in 1945, another young girl, six-year-old Patricia McEwen, was attacked by a man holding a knife in the same area where Sheila was last seen. And then in March 1948, another girl, Brenda Hume, who went to the same primary school as Sheila, Brenda was also attacked in the same fashion. Luckily, even though the attacker cut the young girl several times across the arms and upper body, she managed to escape and alert some nearby adults. Several people chased the attacker into the woods, but he was never caught. Police were confident that the attacker may have been responsible for Sheila's disappearance, but the police found no leads to be able to name a suspect. Even though the police didn't take action to close the case, Sheila's parents continued to spread the word of their daughter's disappearance, sharing flyers to people within the community. Heartbreakingly, they even left their door unlocked, just in case their daughter decided to come home. Sadly, despite more than 70 years passing, No new leads have come up and both of Sheila's parents passed away in the late 1980s, not knowing what happened to their daughter. Later in 2001, the case was reopened after an elderly man who was 13 years old at the time of Sheila's disappearance. He said that he recalled a neighbour digging in his backyard after midnight The elderly man said it was something that had always bothered him, but he didn't tell anyone because he was worried that no one would believe him. The current owner of this property had lived there for nine years, but in 1944, 20-year-old Robert Ryan lived there with his parents and younger brother. In 1948, four years after Sheila was last seen, Ryan moved out of the area, and in 1965, he was charged with sexual assault. After serving time in prison, Ryan returned to his previous home, where he would die of a brain tumour in 1989. Armed with this information, the police assembled a team of forensic archaeologists to excavate the yard of the property. The search team would become headline news around the world. The elderly residents in the area told police they thought the police search was a waste of time. 
They stated that 25 years ago, a massive operation of replacing sewer pipes had taken place in the area. And as part of this, bulldozers dug up that same area. They believed that if Sheila had been buried where the police were searching, her remains would have been uncovered then. After a week of investigation, police unyielded no new evidence, and today Sheila's case remains unsolved. If Sheila Fox were still alive today, she would be 80 years old. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Number six. Alyssa and Livia Shep. In the suburb of St. Sulpice in Switzerland, Irina and Mathis Shep lived with their twin daughters, six year old Alyssa and Livia. Irina and Mathis had grown apart and divorced since the twins' birth. Both parents worked together to give the girls as happy of a life as possible. The two shared custody, although there was some disagreement over Mathis's style of parenting, of strict schedules and rules. Despite this, both parents loved their children deeply. On January 28, 2011, Alyssa and Livia were looking forward to spending the weekend with their father. Mathis told Irina that he would drop the girls off at her house on Sunday evening. This would change the following day, when Mathis sent Irina a text message stating that he would take the girls to school on the Monday morning instead. Irina did not agree to deviating from the original plan. She would text Mathis back the following day, the Sunday, stating that she wasn't happy with this, but that it would be fine only if he would bring the girls to her house at 7am before school. Mathis never responded to this message, but nothing seemed to be wrong. Alyssa and Livia were seen playing with neighbours around noon on January 30th, but by 5pm, Mathis was seen crossing the border into France. He was alone, and his daughters could not be seen on the surveillance footage. On Monday, Mathis did not return his daughters, and Irina contacted the police in a panic. She searched Mathis's house for the girls, but was unable to find any trace of them. The girls were officially reported missing, and a massive search spanning three countries began. Swiss police searched Mathis's boats, along with 60 other nearby homes, but the girls were nowhere to be found. 
Meanwhile, Mathis was seen withdrawing money from several spots in Marcel, France. He also sent a postcard to Irina before boarding a ferry to the island of Corsica. Though no cameras captured footage of Alyssa and Livia boarding the ferry, a witness said that she saw the girls playing in the play area aboard the vessel. This is an unconfirmed sighting, but it is the last trusted witness account. As the hours passed, police employed 11 search dogs and helicopters to track down the girls across three countries, but they seemingly vanished. And then, on Tuesday, February 1st, Mathis landed in Propriano around 6.30am. Mathis took another ferry from Bastia to Toulon, where he arrived the following morning at 7am. Two hours later, Mathis was seen on camera, alone, leading investigators to determine that he no longer had his daughters. He was next spotted in Naples, Italy, around noon on Thursday, February 3rd, and by that night, police had caught up with him. But by that time, it was too late. Mathis was dead. He had thrown himself under a train, leaving behind so many unanswered questions. But most importantly, where were Alyssa and Livia? The search to locate the twins was frantic, especially since Mathis had travelled so far. He stopped at so many different points along the way. After this long, prospects at finding the girls alive seemed dim. Police and Mathis's family believe nothing short of a mental breakdown could have caused the father to abduct his own daughters or to cause them any harm. However, there is evidence to suggest that Mathis put some forethought into his getaway. A French newspaper claimed the entire plan was laid out in a will that Mathis left behind in his house, which was later recovered by authorities. Police also found internet searches for ferry schedules, firearms, poisons and suicide on Mathis's home computer. But perhaps the most telling piece of evidence concerning Mathis's mental health came from the letters he sent to Irina while on the run. These letters have never been released to the public, but one Italian publication did release an excerpt that read, I wanted to die with my daughters, but it didn't go that way. I will be the last to die. You will not see them again. The children rest in peace. They have not suffered and now rest in peace in a tranquil place. The letter allegedly also said that Mathis hoped the events would not lead Irina to take her own life. And this wouldn't be the only letter. Mathis would send eight more letters from Italy before his suicide. Seven of the eight letters contained money. Four and a half thousand euros in total. Later police would uncover two more unset letters that Mathis tried to send containing 1,500 more euros in each. But these were in unused mailboxes. 
the final letter had said that Mathis had, quote, reasonable talk with his wife, but she responded with her lawyers, unquote. He said that he felt like he was going crazy being without his daughters and that he would always love Irina. Police focused their investigation into Corsica, with Irina begging someone, anyone, to come forward with information about the girls. Police found no trace of Alyssa and Livia in the ferry cabin that Mathis had been staying in on the trip to Corsica. However, police felt the eyewitness who saw the girls on the ship was a trustworthy source. And while the girls were not conclusively seen after that, witnesses say they did see Alyssa and Livia with Mathis on several occasions after this, first in a bar where Mathis was talking with a blonde woman and second where Mathis was seen in a chocolate pastry shop with the girls and a brunette woman. Police then found the GPS microchip from Mathis's Audi navigation system not far from where he jumped from the railway tracks. In hopes of recovering Mathis's direct route and therefore possibly uncovering the whereabouts of the girls, they sent the chip to the chip's manufacturer in Korea. However, nothing useful has been recovered from the unit to date and the fate of Alyssa and Livia Shep remains unknown. If Alyssa and Livia are still alive today, they would be 15 years old. Number 5. Beverly Potts Beverly Rose Potts was born April 15, 1941, in Cleveland, Ohio, to parents Robert and Elizabeth Potts. She was known for being a very quiet and shy girl. For being only 10 years old, Beverly was also very responsible. One thing about Beverly that is important to this case is that she was absolutely in love with and fascinated with theatre. One of her favourite things to do every year was to go to the annual performance festival called The Show Wagon. This was something that Beverly loved doing every year. This event was held at Halloran Park, which was located only a minute's walk from her home. Beverly and her neighbour friend, a girl named Patsy Swing, they were planning on going together that year, but Beverly was a little nervous about asking her mother to go. She actually got in trouble not long before for staying out too late at Halloran Park. Now, Halloran Park was a place that was popular with kids during the day. But at night, there were a lot of questionable things going on. It wasn't the kind of place that parents wanted their kids to be hanging out at. But as the show was on, Beverly's mother allowed her to go on this one occasion. On August 24, 1951, at around 7pm, Beverly and Patsy got on their bikes and left for the show. They arrived at Show Wagon and they quickly realised it was hard to manoeuvre through the festival. So since they lived not far from Halloran Park, they decided to ride their bikes back and leave them there and walked back. 
they returned to the festival at around 8pm. At that time of the year, it started getting dark around 830 Patsy told Beverly that she promised her mum that she'd be back home before dark, so she was planning on leaving not long after. She begged Beverly to come with her, but Beverly insisted that her parents said that she could stay for the entire thing. Beverly's parents didn't really want her there after dark, But since the festival had so many people there, with approximately 1,500 people attending that year in particular, they thought that their daughter would be completely fine. Patsy's last memory of Beverly was Beverly watching the performance with a plump woman behind her with one hand on her shoulder and the other hand holding the small child's hand. Patsy would later report never having seen this woman before. Patsy arrived home safely around 9pm and she had no idea that this would be the last day she would see her friend. At this time, the Potts family were at home watching the Indians versus the Yankees baseball game on television, expecting Beverly to be home soon. It wouldn't be until 10pm that Beverly's parents started to get worried that Beverly hadn't returned. They phoned the swing home and were told that Patsy had been home for more than an hour. Beverly's father, Robert, decided to go to Halloran Park to try and find her. This park was covered with large overgrown trees, which spanned 13 acres in distance, which made it difficult to search in the dark of night. After an hour of searching, they found no trace of Beverly and they notified the police. The day after she went missing, her photo was posted on all media outlets and the police and thousands of volunteers went looking for the young girl. Once school started, police decided to go to the school and interview the children there. They wanted to know if any of the other children saw Beverly at Showwagon or saw anything suspicious. One nine-year-old girl said she saw Beverly enter a green car with two men. A couple of other children said they saw Beverly talking to two men outside a black car. There were a lot of supposed sightings of Beverly that night. One story that stood out to the police came from a 13-year-old boy who said that he saw Beverly after the show wagon was over. He started leaving the festival and he saw her walking in the direction of her home. Police asked him how he knew it was Beverly and he said that he knew it was her because she walked funny. And this would be because Beverly walked with a duck walk with her feet pointed outward. Police considered this lead to be credible and that Beverly was most likely abducted on her way home, only a mere minute from her home. In the months following her disappearance, both the police and the Potts family received dozens and dozens of phone calls, some with leads, some with pranks or harassing the family for money. One phone call to the Potts family demanded 25000 in cash to be delivered by Elizabeth Potts 
to an address on a specific date, at a specific time, and it would be only then they would get back Beverly. The police sent a detective in Elizabeth's place. The would-be embezzler was arrested and his home and car was searched. No trace of Beverly was found. After this incident, no substantial evidence was ever found as to what happened to Beverly. And then in 1955, a man named Harvey Lee Rush came forward and confessed to killing the young girl. He said that he lured her near a bridge with some candy. However, his confession didn't ring true to investigators because he said it happened in 1952. He would later admit that he'd made up the whole confession because he wanted to be extradited from Cleveland and just used the opportunity to return to his hometown. In 1974, two Cleveland detectives named James First and Robert Shanklin received a tip from a local attorney. The attorney said his client's brother had said that he may have abducted Beverly. The detectives questioned the brother and he said that he used to live close to Halloran Park and he would often abduct and sexually assault young girls. He had memory of one of these girls telling him that her name was Beverly. The detectives believed his story, but the county prosecutor's office said there was not enough evidence to pursue any charges. In 1988, a man named Henry William Redmond was convicted of the 1951 murder of an eight-year-old girl named Jane Murray in Pennsylvania. While in prison, Redmond admitted to a cellmate to killing three other young girls around that time. Police did question him about Beverly Potts, but he absolutely refused to give a statement. And then in 2000, reporter Brent Larkin of the Cleveland Plain Dealer started receiving letters from an anonymous man who claimed that he was elderly and that before his death he wanted to confess to murdering Beverly Potts. He said that he would turn himself in on August 24, 2001, on the 50th anniversary of her disappearance. This never happened, though. Apparently this is because in his last letter he said that he'd be entering a nursing home and wouldn't be able to honour his promise. After researching further into this, Brett Larkin and most police believe that this is a complete hoax. The latest possible lead was in 2015, when the Cleveland Police Department received a tip from an anonymous person. This person provided information about a possible suspect, and they were able to give plenty of detail that had never been released to the public. A massive public appeal went ahead, begging the person to call back with more information, but that person never did. Unfortunately, because of this, many investigators now believe that this was just another false alarm. If Beverly Potts is still alive today, she would be 79 years old.
Number four, The Frog Boys. March 26, 1991 was a national holiday in South Korea. A group of five boys who ranged in age from 9 to 13 decided to go catch frogs in Mount Woryong, which was not far from their homes. When none of them returned later that day, a massive search was launched. Over the weeks that followed, 300,000 police and military staff looked for the boys, but no trace of them could be found. Their skeletal remains wouldn't be found until 11 years later, when heavy rainfall washed away their shallow graves. The boys would be found buried only a mile away from their homes. All five boys had been buried side by side with their shoes beside them. The pathologist who examined the bones found marks on three of the boys' skulls. It was determined that based on this, the boys were stabbed in the head with a sharp object, something like a pick or a chisel-pointed hammer. The police have never publicly identified a suspect, and the abduction and murder of the Frog Boys is one of South Korea's most notorious unsolved mysteries. Number 3. Michaela Garrett Michaela Garrett was nine years old when she was abducted on November 19, 1988. Michaela and her friend rode their scooters to the nearby Rainbow Market in Haywood, California to buy snacks and drinks. They left their scooters as they went inside the store, but when they left, the scooters were missing. Michaela eventually spotted their scooters further down in the market parking lot and leaning against a car. When she bent down to pick up the scooter, an unidentified young man with long blonde hair came out of the parked car, quickly grabbed her around the waist, shoved her into the car and drove away. Michaela's friend witnessed this entire ordeal and she ran back into the store to get help. But by the time anyone could, the car had disappeared. Michaela's friend was unable to get the license plate number, but was able to give a description to the police, and a composite sketch was drawn up. The abductor was estimated to be six foot tall, between 18 and 25 years old, with dirty blonde shoulder-length hair. He had severe acne and was wearing a white T-shirt. His car was said to be a four-door older model car that was either red or burgundy, with concrete or mud splutters on the side. Despite an extensive hunt for Michaela and her abductor, neither were ever found. Her photograph appeared on billboards and milk cartons. Thousands of flyers and posters were also spread throughout the community. Over the years that followed, the discovery of another missing girl, J.C. Dugard, gave police a new person of interest. Police considered J.C.'s abductor, Philip Garrado, might have been involved in Michaela's disappearance. He lived around an hour from Haywood, 
and the abduction took place only three months after he was released from prison for kidnapping and rape. The police conducted an extensive investigation into him and found no evidence linking him to Michaela's abduction. Police also considered Lauren Herzog, who was one half of the Speed Freak killers. He became a suspect when his partner wrote a letter following Herzog's suicide, claiming that he had killed Michaela. While excavating a well where Herzog and his partner had disposed of their victims, police found a pair of shoes that looked similar to the ones Michaela was wearing when she was abducted. But when Haywood investigators requested to examine the shoes, their request was denied for reasons unknown. Michaela's case has since gone cold and no new evidence has ever come forth. If Michaela Garrett was still alive today, she would be 43 years old. Number 2. Lisa Irwin At 4am on October 4th, 2011, Jeremy Irwin returned to his home in Kansas City, Missouri to find the house lights on and the front door unlocked. He went to check on his 10-month-old daughter, Lisa, only to discover in horror that her crib was empty and her bedroom window wide open. Also missing from the home was three cell phones and a credit card. From the initial investigation, all suspicion fell onto Lisa's mother, Deborah Bradley. On the night of the disappearance, Deborah admitted she was drunk, but she said that she recalled putting her daughter to bed with a blanket and pacifier. On October 19th, police used cadaver dogs to search the Irwin family home, and a dog hit on a scent near Deborah's bed, but no additional evidence was found. The police also removed clothing and toys from the home to forensically examine. At one point, when trying to get a confession, police even told Deborah that she failed a polygraph test when in fact she had passed. For her part, Deborah has always remained steadfast that she had nothing to do with Lisa's disappearance. She believes that Lisa was abducted by a stranger. And there may be some truth to this theory. Two witnesses came forward to state they had seen a man walking down the street holding a baby. A man matched the description of the suspect who was identified by another witness, but yet another witness said he was not the man they saw. In May 2012, eight months after Lisa went missing, Jeremy and Deborah claimed that there had been a fraudulent hit on their stolen credit card from a website that makes fake birth certificates, and it was found this website does exist. In October 2013, a story broke claiming that a girl matching Lisa's description was found in the gypsy camp. Investigators found this girl, but it was determined it was not Lisa Irwin. This case is still considered an active case, and investigators believe that Lisa may still be alive, 
living with another family and not aware that she was stolen from her parents. There is currently an $100,000 reward for information leading to her recovery. If Lisa Irwin is still alive today, she would be 10 years old. Number 1. Johnny Gosh On the morning of September 5th, 1982, 12-year-old Johnny Gosh got up early to deliver newspapers. He was supposed to deliver the newspapers with his father, but apparently Johnny got up before his dad and didn't want to wake him. Johnny and his dog met up with the other newspaper boys to assemble the papers on the streets in the affluent neighbourhood of Westers Moines, Iowa. A man with dark hair and a moustache driving a two-toned blue Ford Fairmont, he stopped and talked to the boys and asked for directions. When Johnny left the group of boys, the man started his car and flicked his interior light on and off three times before following Johnny. A man who lived in the neighbourhood also saw the unidentified man. The neighbour said that the man stopped and asked for directions to 86th Street. At around 7.30am, Johnny's parents, Noreen and John, got a phone call from someone on his route. They said that their newspaper hadn't been delivered yet. A short time later, the family dog returned home without Johnny. His parents searched the neighbourhood and found his wagon full of newspapers. Johnny, however, was nowhere to be found. The police were called and it would take them 45 minutes to arrive at the Gosh family home. They didn't take the disappearance seriously and they thought he just ran away. Two years went by and Noreen and John still had no idea what happened to their son. After his abduction, Noreen worked to change the law surrounding missing children. In 1984, Johnny became one of the first missing children to be featured on a milk carton. This same year, another boy went missing under very similar circumstances. On August 12, 1984, at around 5am, 13-year-old Eugene Martin left his home alone to deliver newspapers in Des Moines. Normally, he would deliver these with his older stepbrother, but on that morning, he didn't. Witnesses would later report they saw Eugene talking to a clean-cut man in his 30s between 5 and 5.45. They seemed to be having a friendly conversation and Eugene seemed to be in good spirits. Another witness said they saw the man talking to Eugene sometime between 5.45 and 6.05am while Eugene folded his newspapers. Less than 15 minutes later, Eugene's bag was found with newspapers in it on a sidewalk, but Eugene had vanished. The police are unsure if the two disappearances are connected, but have publicly stated that there are a lot of similarities. In May of 1997, at around 2.30am, Noreen Gosh said that she was visited by her son Johnny, who would now have been 27. 
Noreen said he had long hair but showed her a birthmark on his chest to prove to her that he was who he said he was. He told his mother that he had been abducted by a national pedophile sex ring and he was cast out when he got too old. Noreen said he didn't stay long and he told her he was in hiding and was too afraid to come home. And then in 2006, Noreen found an unmarked envelope on her doorstep. Inside, there were two pictures. Noreen believes that her son was in these pictures. She said that Johnny was wearing the same pants in the photo he was wearing the day he went missing and that his birthmark is visible in the photo. The second photo showed three boys tied up. Noreen insists that one is Johnny and the other two supposedly being boys who were abducted from Washington State. Noreen would receive more photos after this, similar to the first photos. Several other people involved with the case were either mailed photos or sent photos over the internet of boys who looked like Johnny and all of them were bound. A police officer in Florida said he looked into these photos and none of the boys in any of the photos were Johnny. However, these claims have never been confirmed. As for the police in Iowa, they believe that the photos are probably just a prank. On the other hand, Noreen is adamant that she knows that the boys in the photos are of her son. If Johnny Gosh is still alive today... He would be 52 years old. Do you have something you would like to see mysteriously listed? Do you have a particular theme that interests you? Message us on Facebook at Mysteriously Listed and on Twitter at Mysterious List. If you like what you've heard today, we would love for you to share this episode on your social media of choice. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, we would appreciate it if you could leave a positive review and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Research, additional writing and hosting is by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.